all-encompassing chats. This is episode number four and my name is Kylie G and today we're joined by herbalist and gut guru Todd Mansfield, also known as the bioherbalist. Hey Todd. Hello Kylie, good to be here. Awesome, thanks so much for joining me. Um, Pleasure. So we've got some questions. I, I felt it was really important to have you come on and have a chat um gut issues just seem to be so prevalent these days and I feel there's a lot of um people walk through my door who don't necessarily associate the symptoms that they're experiencing with a gut issue so can we begin there um what are some signs and symptoms of gut issues that people may be experiencing and may not necessarily associate with a gut issue Mm, yeah, good, good question. So, I mean, the digestive symptoms, they're pretty easy and straightforward to connect with, uh, you know, guts and, and digestion. Um, but I frequently see a lot of kind of nervous system dysfunction. So that could be like anxiety, depression. Um, I frequently see skin health issues. It's pretty kind of strongly uh, linked to constipation, but not always. Um, joint pain, that's another really, really strong one. And then autoimmune diseases across the board, just the umbrella of autoimmune dysfunction. Your body's kind of attacking itself for some reason. And my preference, and you know, it's definitely my bias, it's what I see in the clinic and um, you know, what I see in the literature. But starting with the gut, it's a great, great place to start. Doesn't always kind of cure autoimmune diseases. Um, but there's frequently this kind of inflammatory cascade associated with um, an imbalanced gut dysbiosis, whether that's in the small bowel or the large bowel, could even be in the stomach, that would be H. pylori, strongly associated with autoimmune diseases, um, even kind of clinically speaking. And, um, and and your digestion. Yes, yeah, so those are really big ones. I'm, I'm sure there are a bunch of other ones that, uh, that you've seen as well, but th those would be the big ones I'd be looking for outside of the kind of classic digestive sim uh, symptoms. Cool, so what are some signs and symptoms of gut issues that people may be experiencing? So I guess you just touched on them, some of them with the nervous system stuff. So yeah. Uh, like sleep and that sort of what's the flow on effect of those issues yeah great yeah I love it you're kind of piecing it all together so you know you mentioned sleep someone's dealing with kind of a nervous system or even like a neurotransmitter imbalance maybe they have high dopamine they're that wired and tired picture um, you know ex extremely tired but can't get to sleep or can't stay asleep could be something um, pressing on the immune system, pressing on the nervous system and disrupting or dysregulating your neurotransmitters. Um, and frequently that comes from the gut. So I'm doing a whole lot of urine testing at the moment. Anyone who's been unwell for longer than a year, I will, um, and you know, it's kind of you're not clear if we know exactly what's going on, I, I wouldn't recommend it. But uh, yeah, doing a lot of organic acids testing and it just answers so many questions. I'm seeing so much mold growing in the body. I'm seeing so many kind of fungal overgrowths. And uh, you were seeing a lot of these kind of like biochemical, uh, you know, the, the pathways get totally disrupted. Um, so it could be high dopamine, poor sleep, and then poor sleep kind of presses on the adrenals. And then you wind up with um, kind of the old school term would be something like adrenal fatigue. 
um, you know, the new school way of looking at it and the new literature coming out would be more of the um, hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis getting kind of overloaded and overworked Then people burn out and then they have trouble managing the inflammation that might be kind of stemming from the gut originally. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle. I find, uh, you know, my preference and, and where I do see kind of clinical improvements in, in most patients, uh, not everyone, unfortunately, is addressing gut dysfunction first, dealing with the symptoms just so patients feel better and, you know, they get a little bit of, uh, you know, that momentum and, and we can kind of work with, uh, with, with that momentum. Um, but yeah, digestion would be a big place to start for, you know, uh, health concerns globally, systemic health concerns, or even things that don't seem to be related. Uh, poor skin health would be a, a huge one that I see, uh, even associated with fungal overgrowths, candida, mold growing in the body. So when you, you mentioned dopamine there, I feel that's something that um, another that people may not realise can stem from imbalances in your gut. If you're talking about low dopamine or high dopamine, that could be addictions. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So with low, yeah, you nailed it. Exactly. Yeah. And that would be low dopamine. Um, so again, you know, if we're kind of tying it together, I do see a heck of a lot of low dopamine on neurotransmitter testings. And I do see a fair amount of high dopamine, low dopamine. And again, this is kind of a gray area. This is the big thing, and uh, and hopefully this is clear. Not everyone fits into these nice, neat boxes. It's actually quite rare. <laughs> That's why testing can be so, so valuable, particularly if you're chronically unwell. It's always a question mark. And what I, I see it all the time. Patients come to me, and they might have been doing everything right, but they weren't doing it for long enough. It could be that simple. And without having a really clear kind of um, idea on what's going on, is it SIBO? Is it the small bowel? Is it the stomach? Like something like H. pylori? Is the large bowel dysregulated? Is there mold in your environment? There's all these big questions. And sometimes someone with SIBO can present with the exact same symptoms as someone with mold in the environment. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a big question. Is it SIBO? Is it mold? Keeping the testing um, affordable, that's a big goal of mine. I, I do recognize that this is expensive, um, um, you know, especially that initial investment. Um, but if there's anything I can't, if there's anything that will change the treatment um, or anything I can't guess, um, yeah, I'll definitely recommend, um, you know, uh, testing, uh, not excessive, but, but definitely uh, testing would be big. On the low dopamine front, uh, getting back to that front, um, that would be uh, addictions for sure. I'd see that, um, you know, more frequently than high dopamine. Gambling, um, social media would be a really big one. Um, you know, people who are kind of addicted to their phone and, and that little kind of um, dopamine surge that they get. Um, uh, sh uh, sugar would be a really big one. Um, there's a lot of these kind of uh, addictive behaviors that people get into because they, they're, they're low on that dopamine front. And there's also a crossover there with um, commonly known issues such as your ADHD and these sorts of things. That dopamine plays a role in that too, yeah? Is it, is it possible that ADHD in some people could actually be a gut, gut issue? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And if we're kind of trying to tie everything together, um, you know, it could be something as simple as 
um, an inability. It could be something as simple as low stomach acid, right? Leading to low dopamine in, in the system. And that's because most of these neurotransmitters are built on amino acids and amino acids are coming from your protein, you know, in a kind of an omnivorous diet, it would be, in, um, you know, in, in kind of in meat, red meat, um, and the ability to kind of break down these kind of protein structures into amino acids, that'll take stomach acid initially, kicks on into the small bowel, um, particularly the, the upper small bowel, the uh, duodenum, and then the, uh, the pancreas kind of takes over from there with uh, a lot of the kind of uh, pancreatic enzymes. That's another huge thing that I'm seeing. Uh, you'll totally, you'll love this, Kylie. I'm seeing it all the time, you know, not, not in everyone, but I'm seeing it totally neglected. And that would be um, poor kind of pancreatic, uh, exocrine pancreatic insufficiencies, the big kind of fancy name that uh, medicine puts on it. But it's basically like the pancreas isn't producing enough of these enzymes to keep up with the uh, you know, food consumption. And they will present with exactly the same symptoms as SIBO. Yeah. And they might even have SIBO, that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, bloating, distension, gas, indigestion, reflux, diarrhea, maybe constipation, all of these, um, you know, kind of IBS uh, symptoms, they might even wind up with something like SIBO as a consequence of poor kind of um, enzyme production from the pancreas. Yeah, right. So you've touched on SIBO a couple of times. And I know in my space, I've mentioned that to a few clients and they've never heard of it. Could you <laughs> briefly just give us a, a little brief explanation? I would love to. Yep. It's a huge passion of mine. Mm -hmm. My understanding of SIBO has just kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's ever evolving. That's the best way to put it. Um, so keeping it nice and simple, um, SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so basically, and again, once you kind of dive in and really kind of understand the, uh, the nuances, things could become a lot more complex. Keeping it nice and easy to understand, a, the small bowel is overgrown with bacteria that shouldn't be there. And uh, they present with a lot of the same symptoms as something like irritable bowel syndrome. So it depends on who you read, depends on what test they use. Um, testing for SIBO, it's a there's an art and a science to it um, because the small bowel is right in the middle of your digestive tract. It can be very difficult to sample. Um, so again, um, the literature is a little bit mixed, but um, a lot of people who have been labeled with IBS uh, actually have SIBO. And uh, clinically, I think kind of clinically is the most, that's the most valuable data. Like, do you have SIBO? Yes, you do. We treat it. It resolves. You feel better. That takes, you know, precedence over, uh, over a piece of uh, scientific uh, literature. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm just testing for and finding SIBO in my patient population, I know, you know, people are coming to me because they have digestive health issues. Um, so it definitely makes sense. But if you are bloated and distended, particularly after food, um, if you have kind of indigestion, particularly within that hour or two after consuming food, changes in bowel movements, whether it's diarrhea, whether it's constipation, 
um, slow gut transit time that's getting off into kind of a different um, type of SIBO. Um, and then all these other symptoms that we were talking about that are good, they go beyond the digestive tract, but uh, you know, they, they kind of uh, start in the digestive tract and those imbalances. It's fascinating. And, and you touched on something there that I'm very passionate about. Um, I, I feel like our current model of health is band-aiding and we're not getting into the root causes. So labeling people with IBS rather than going in and finding out what's actually going on, where the, the patient can then go on to leave a much more comfortable and happier existence than if they're just carrying around a label. So I think the work you're doing is very important <laughs> and helping to restore some quality of life to people, such as me, for <laughs> one. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, cause all, I'm just listening to all the things that you're railing off, I'm like, oh, that was me, 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 me. <laughs> Okay. Very common. You're not alone. I think yeah. that's the biggest, biggest thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's surprisingly common. Yeah, and I think it's um, the situation I was in, I, I feel this is important for people to know, is you, you feel crazy. You feel like you're going mm. crazy, that nobody understands me, what is wrong with me, my body's broken. And mm. um, I, I believe you and I have touched on this in previous conversations, the importance of bringing in trauma and emotional mm. Um, the emotional work so can you tell me what you're seeing there I guess it's all anecdotal for you but what are you seeing in terms of the effects that our that that trauma is having on your gut biome Mm, yeah that's great and that's kind of thinking beyond labels I mean you know kind of IBS would be a label SIBO would be a label I, you know, as a clinician, I, I kind of like labels to get a little bit of a, you know, a feel for what's going on, maybe what like a gastroenterologist has kind of thought or maybe diagnosed you with, that, that's really helpful. We can start to go into the uh, pathophysiology, something like SIBO, small bowel, um, that's the kind of, um, you know, the powerhouse of digesting and absorbing nutrients kind of high up in the uh, in the digestive tract um, but again those are just labels something has set up something has become disrupted something has allowed bacteria to grow where in kind of a healthy gut it shouldn't uh, trauma PTSD those are all uh, you know really big ones and theorizing, you know, you mentioned kind of anecdotally, and I definitely have theories that I don't see when I when I kind of do my research, but I would suspect that a lot of that comes back to um, your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because you go through, uh, you know, education, you do these degrees, Bachelor of Health Science, nervous system, nervous system, nervous system. And I, I didn't kind of fully understand what that meant until I, until I started doing a lot of these um, um, neurotransmitter urine tests. And you can see, circling back to something like dopamine, you can see when you test someone's nervous system, right? Like the neurotransmitters govern the uh, you know, parts of the nervous system, something like excessive dopamine is going to shut down your ability to regulate your digestion. Um, I'm sure it goes well beyond the, uh, the vagal nerve. 
-hmm. but uh, that that's a really, really big part of, uh, you know, my work. I want to be assessing people's gut motility, seeing how quickly things are passing through the digestive tract. You can definitely do that through a gastroenterologist. That's the, uh, the most accurate way of doing it. It's a little bit of a painful test to do. Um, I haven't seen too many of my patients, you know, get, get this test, uh, get this test done, but even tracking how long um, food travels from the mouth to the toilet bowl. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked at a patient who was having maybe four or five loose watery bowel movements a day. I said, look, let's test your gut transit time, you know, drink a tablespoon of sesame seeds in water, you know, track how long it takes for it to come out, track whether it comes out in multiple bowel movements over multiple days. And he got back to me, maybe, uh, I think his gut transit time was around 10 or 12 days. And so, you know, something that simple, motility is definitely compromised. Why is motility compromised it could be nervous system that could be vagal nerve damage um, that could be food poisoning that is a major major root cause of, uh, of SIBO particularly uh, the diarrhea prone SIBO and um, the uh, the last little piece right there is if you're not passing food through your digestive tract at the appropriate speed bit of a gray area I think anything kind of beyond 36 hours is a bit slow the longer that goes, the uh, the more of a concern it is and the more of a kind of primary treatment goal I, I'd have for it, the more you're reabsorbing all of this stuff that your body has kind of prioritized to eliminate through a bowel movement. Your main detox channel is blocked. And so you see skin issues, you see mental health issues, you see autoimmune issues, you see kind of inflammatory um, response issues. There's, there's a ton of kind of consequences. And really it's the kind of weak link, like genetically, um, you know, do, do, are you prone to inflammatory bowel disease? If so, you know, you might wind up with, um, you know, Crohn's disease or um, ulcerative colitis. Um, you know, you might have a family history of, um, of thyroid disease like I do. That might be where, um, you know, you express the, um, the, the issues that are happening in your digestive tract. Yes. So aside from your, your emotional stuff and your genetics and the emotional stuff does have a massive, the, the current study I'm doing right now, is uh, into epigenetics. So it's into like how the emotional stuff affects the expression of our DNA, which is really fascinating. Um, just because something's in our DNA doesn't mean it has to, has to express. Mm -hmm. uh, so what other causes of gut issues uh, are common to walk through your door? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm always looking. So the main condition that I treat and it's not because I, I mean, it can be very stubborn. So it's not because I kind of want to, I mean, I'm happy to work with these patients, but it's because patients aren't finding resolution. It's the constipated predominant uh, SIBO. It's a methane dominant SIBO. And so these patients will be, um, you know, very constipated. They'll have very slow gut transit time. They'll be very bloated. They'll be very uh, distended, lots of flatulence, reflux kind of on it goes. And um, I'm, I'm always looking for root causes for that particular um, 
uh, that particular condition. And again, this is all theoretical, but I, I do a lot of testing when I need to. And I see this from time to time to time. I'm seeing uh, antibiotic kind of associated gut dysfunction. So the root cause is frequently antibiotics. We can kind of touch back on that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of disrupted gut. I mean, it could be antibiotics as a, um, a young baby. Um, something, other things that can disrupt the uh, microbiome would be um, C-section um, births, um, you know, um, not being breastfed, not being breastfed long enough. Um, the other really big thing that I'm seeing, again, particularly for that methane-dominant SIBO, but uh, you can definitely broaden the scope to, uh, you know, gut dysfunction in general would be things like um, uh, bile flow issues. Generally, that, that presents with, um, you know, greasy, fatty stools. Maybe there's a bit of a sheen on the toilet bowl, but uh, I, I do have a number of patients that are um, chronically constipated and um, don't see any of that kind of weight loss and, uh, you know, fat in the stools, low uh, fat soluble vitamins on testing. And that they still have um, very poor bile flow. Bile, it's pretty kind of fascinating. The body's kind of evolved to regulate and maintain homeostasis, right? Like it wants, it wants to heal. That's probably like the huge headline. Um, so taking and, and rebalancing and giving the body what it needs to come back to balance, um, that, that's, that, that's the work that I do. Sometimes it can be really, you know, really simple. We call them like easy riders, you know, the kind of SIBO uh, um, clinician community. But um, sometimes you just have to fight tooth and nail to, um, you know, to get these kind of percent, these milestones that I'm looking for in in treatment. Um, So antibiotics, that's huge. Poor bile flow, that's absolutely huge. And I think that those two, and obviously that's kind of, um, you know, a, a short list that should be a lot longer. Uh, that's what I'm looking for in my, uh, in my patient population. Can definitely um, um, be environmental. So the longer that I work, um, you know, in this field, the more I'm seeing patients that are, you know, extremely unwell. And uh, a lot of that, those times, particularly here in uh, Australia and the kind of wetter regions, um, that, that, that's mold affected, mold in their environment, mold in their body, um, you know, fungal overgrowth, suppresses their immune function, blocks all their detox pathways, and then they just burn through all these kind of vitamins and minerals that they need to um, power these enzymes. The enzymes get kind of a bit too loaded down. And then they wind up with all these really significant nutrient deficiencies, hair loss, weight loss, poor skin, absolute total inability to detoxify anything, exercise intolerance, um, you know, and when it gets really kind of concerning for the patient and, you know, and for me working with them, it's when things kick over into, um, you know, dysautonomia conditions. And, and that would be if, we're, if we kind of keep coming back to the nervous system, which is where this kind of rant started. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, that that's the nervous system, that the, the arms of the nervous system not talking to each other properly. Um, frequently, it's kicked over into sympathetic dominance. 
And that would be, um, you know, kind of most obvious on testing high dopamine, high noradrenaline, high adrenaline. And unfortunately, with the testing that I do, I don't see it, but I suspect it. And there's some really common symptoms uh, presenting. But um, glutamate is a very, very uh, toxic uh, neurotransmitter that you can find, uh, you know, when it's overrepresented. MSG, if anyone's struggling with MSG, if they have even a little bit, and this used to be me back when, um, you know, my, my digestion was compromised, a tiny touch of MSG, it would feel, I would feel, I would start sweating, I would become incredibly irritable, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be able to sleep, it would be like I had 20 cups of coffee in one go, jittery, um, so again, yeah, coming back to the uh, nervous system, uh, that, that's how all that kind of plays in feeding into conditions and symptoms, and then also on the other side, um, um, uh, causing them, you know, things like the motility disorders. You've, you've just described how I felt as well. <laughs> yeah. mold. It just felt like you had, you had your foot on the accelerator constantly yeah. and couldn't, it just yeah panic and anxiety and and then mm. we had the double whammy where uh because of the mold i couldn't clear that adrenaline either so that was mm. that was a fun body to be in but the weight <laughs> loss the hair loss the all of the things that was what mm. the, the funny thing i find is that um after leaving a moldy environment i felt better mm. and it wasn't until further down the track that we really saw the there was you know just another event that kind of tipped me over and we really have had to go in and look at, at undoing that damage that mold exposure caused i don't think people really understand the significance of being in a moldy environment it's not just a bit of a histamine response where you might be a bit sneezy and a bit watery mm. can you describe what happens when you actually inhale that like how that then gets into affect your gut and all your other bodily functions Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at the moment we're talking about mold in the environment. Um, it can be a little bit kind of challenging to test for mold in the environment. It's very costly. It's very disruptive. It's really kind of painful for everyone involved. And, you know, a lot of what you were kind of saying that that's different kind of symptom presentation. So I've seen this happen so many times. It's, it's not even funny. It's, it's definitely something to um, uh, be aware of if this is you out there. If you are feeling in an environment unsafe, um, uh, fatigued, joint pain, it's absolutely huge with mold exposure and mycotoxins in the body, uh, you know, in the environment, that's what we're talking about, and even kind of fungal overgrowths in the body, that, that's big as well. Um, but say your partner, absolutely fine, no problem, absolutely fine. A lot of that comes back down to, um, you know, and obviously there's more going on, it could be your um, your past kind of health issues, you might be more primed or more kind of uh, at risk. Um, a lot of that comes down to uh, genetics, your ability to kind of detoxify and remove things out of the body. Um, the other really big one that we're looking at, and again, this is why the organic acids test, uh, particularly from Great Plains, I have looked into all the different ones and I've ordered them and I've reviewed them and I'm kind of firmly in the Great Plains camp. Um, it's, it's looking also at your ability to 
recycle and um, the kind of uh, amount of glutathione that you have in, in your body and glutathione, that's your master antioxidant. It's going to help to kind of bind to and eliminate out of the body. A lot of these toxins, mycotoxins would be big. Um, heavy metals would be really big. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things there. Um, but if we're keeping it nice and simple, mold exposure, um, again, people are going to present in different ways because everyone's unique. Um, a lot of those kind of histamine symptoms generally or the kind of easiest ones to pick there, there would be things like sinus congestion, headaches above your eyes, dark bags under your eyes, sore lymph nodes under your ears, um, post-nasal drip. Those are all really big ones, but it can also kick over to things like, um, you know, your... Um, your heart can be involved, racing heart, palpitations, um, high blood pressure, even arrhythmias. That can be a, a sign of a histamine overload. On the mold front, you know, everyone's kind of obsessed with diet, which is great. You know, we need a good, clean diet. But I haven't found that limiting high histamine foods can cure um, this histamine intolerance associated with mold. And that's because the whole kind of the whole picture there is immune mediated. It's got a lot to do with these um, uh, these things called mast cells, these little white blood cells that live on the gut lining. They're looking for problems. And when they find problems, um, they liberate a lot of these pro-inflammatory um, uh, messenger molecules and, and histamine is a big one there. So then your body is just flooded full of histamine and all the enzymes that need to keep up there uh, falter because there's just too much, there's too much load. So, you know, with a lot of these patients that are chronically unwell, I'm talking about like, you know, chronic fatigue, you know, can't move, can't exercise, feel worse with food, you know, even things like water can set off um, digestive symptoms. Um, with, with them getting into the, uh, you know, the biochemical pathways, and slowly starting to kind of support these different enzymes to, um, to, help, to help things like histamine drain away. Priority number one, we need stability. If we need to use pharmaceuticals, I'm, I'm kind of uh, more than happy with, uh, with certain pharmaceuticals that can help kind of stabilize and, and buy us a bit of time. Um, but the long tail of the treatment is binding and eliminating out of the body. The sooner we go to binding, particularly if people are kind of chronically unwell, significantly unwell, the um, you know the, the worse they do. I, I don't I don't find that the most sensitive um, kind of uh, affected mold affected uh, patient can tolerate binders initially. Right. So this is all um, sounding very doom and gloom thus far <laughs> what are some potential or common treatment options and what are the the outcomes for people who have these sorts of issues that come to you for treatment mm, yeah yeah i mean i like that little comment on doom and gloom like this and you know obviously my kind of my patient population again the more work i do and 
and the more people I see, the, the more unwell they are. Um, you know, if you are exposed to mold and you're just dealing with kind of like a, like a, a mild histamine intolerance, you know, allergies, you know, it could be kind of dust mites, could be pollen, could be hay fever, but, you know, all year round for no reason, you know, I'd be, I'd be looking at your environment. I'd be looking at any water damage. Um, so it could be nice and simple. Kind of remediation can be pretty straightforward. I know personally, we moved into our, um, our place now and um, finally got the bathroom renovated and the, um, you know, the, uh, the builder doing it, uh, he called me up and he said they had not put in any water protection, any kind of sealant. <laughs> so the whole bathroom had fallen apart underneath the kind of tiles and the, uh, and the gyp rock. And uh, I, I think that's probably more common than you'd think. Mm -hmm. um, again, it might, might sound like doom and gloom, but the more I learn about building biology, and I'm not a building biologist, but the, the more I learn about it and kind of work with building biologists, the more I'm recognizing that our, the environments that we live in impact and contribute to our health. I love how you're so kind of focused on, you know, emotional and relationships and past traumas. That's huge for kind of nervous system set and governs a lot of digestion. Um, environment's huge as well. Um, one, one huge pearl for anyone listening, clean your air conditioner, please. Get a professional over that specializes in cleaning your air conditioner, pull it apart, get into the nuts and bolts, wipe it down. I'm not talking about someone that installs air conditioners. I'm talking about someone that specializes in cleaning them. Another, you know, story from my, you know, experience, learned about this, called up an air conditioner kind of mechanic, was like, can you come out and clean it? I, you know, really, I'll pay you. I want you to do it well. Do a really good job, please. Doesn't, don't care if it costs more money. Came out, did the job, kind of watched him, you know, had other things going on. He left, everything was fine. Mold started growing again. Remember, I live in a very damp climate. I'm in the um, Northern New South Wales subtropics. So when we're running our air conditioner, it's just pulling water out of the air. That's what it does. Does that, you know, six months of the year, nonstop. And he came back over, cleaned it again. And then I finally was like, look, this isn't good enough. And I got into it myself and I could see black mold. He just left. There's black mold all through my air conditioner. Yeah. And that's because, yeah, exactly. He wasn't trained. You know, it wasn't kind of building biology level. Like these things, they, they need to be dealt with properly uh, by professionals. So yeah, def definitely clean your, uh, clean your air conditioner, please. And, and quickly, if there's water damage, depending on the climate you're in, you need to do that quickly. The, the environment I was living in previously, we were prone to cold temperatures, but high humidity. Um, mm. So we've now moved out to an environment where it's very dry heat and very low mm. humidity. And mm. I find that my health is improving tenfold since being out here because it's so dry. And if things get wet, they dry really quickly. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's absolutely huge. And that's why kind of, you know, p p patients that are mold affected, like significantly mold affected. And again, that's the kind of doom and gloom side of things. Like I know I'm kind of that that's my patient population. Mm -hmm. That's not everyone. But, um, you know, moving to a drier climate can be the game changer for health. 
Um, I, I heard this from, um, you know, one of the kind of building biologist um, uh, educators here in Australia. She said that in a, a, a wet uh, environment, wet climate, you know, subtropics or, you know, even if it's cool, um, cool and wet, maintaining the humidity in your living environment at under 70% is the cost of living in that environment. And that was just a light bulb for me because, yeah, exactly, it's, it's beautiful because all the kind of, you know, environmental sustainability, running your air conditioner, which is just your kind of built-in dehumidifier. Um, you know, I'd, we, we'd leave for holidays in the middle of uh, summer where it's wet up here and you turn off the air conditioner. Absolutely not. Keep that running at 21 degrees the whole time you're gone. Run your dehumidifier the whole time you're gone. Your living environment is, is so important for your health. And yeah, just that that's the cost of living in a in a wet, in a wet climate. You've got to keep that humidity below 70%, uh, you know, day and night, um, you know, 12, 12 months a year. And what about when we talk about going back to like SIBO and uh, gut imbalances, fungal overgrowth, what sort of prognosis is there and, and minimising those symptoms that we first spoke about? What sort of treatment option, options are available and what sort of long-term prognosis? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think for me, the most important thing, and this is what's often neglected, I mean, the small, the small bowel, SIBO, is frequently neglected, um, even by gastroenterologists. You know, I, I have a bunch of patients that say, look, you know, wanted to get tested for SIBO, but my, uh, my gastro doesn't, uh, doesn't believe in SIBO mm -hmm. and it's not woo-woo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's so much literature. It's, it's a pretty kind of new condition. They're starting to kind of unpack it and, and explore it more and more, but it is well-documented in peer-reviewed scientific literature, like high quality journals. Definitely not woo-woo, uh, definitely something uh, that, that's out there getting a, a proper diagnosis that can guide treatment would be step number one. Mm -hmm. And I, I do see this kind of every now and again, and I've started to kind of like educate uh, patients and, uh, you know, patients to be, some of them kind of contact, it's a little bit of time to see me generally, it can be kind of like, um, you know, a month or two before your initial. And they say, look, let's just get the testing done now before you see me, and then we'll have all the data. That would be incredible. The only problem with that is letting your symptoms kind of tell me what I think might be wrong to guide testing is, is that's part of, you know, working, you know, and, and the initial consult. So with, with SIBO, anytime you become bloated and distended after meals, um, I would be pushing hard and recommending strongly for a SIBO breath test. I'm using the organic acids test as a baseline for anyone that's been chronically unwell. Um, if we're talking about treatment, it's looking at the kind of, um, you know, the functional diagnosis. So say you come back SIBO positive and it's clear and obvious and the symptoms make sense. Remodeling the small bowel. So initially reducing those bacterial overgrowths uh, can be helpful for symptoms. But, and this is the big thing that I'm learning, um, you know, kind of the hard way, it's resolving the root cause that led to SIBO. Like I'm starting to look at SIBO as a symptom of a deeper dysregulation. It could be something like low stomach acid. 
It could be something like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, so not enough of those enzymes. It could be a motility disorder. And then a lot of those things that we talked about before, bile flow, so that's liver, the gallbladder, to the small bowel, that's the kind of trifecta there. Mm -hmm. And then the last little piece would be antibiotic exposure. If your large bowel, that's moving on from the small to the large, is imbalanced, you know, it's got a lot of these pro-inflammatory, less friendly bugs. It's definitely going to be contributing to a lot of the, uh, the load on the body. Sometimes it can kind of like backflow into the small bowel, for lack of a better kind of descriptive term. Um, I don't really see that. A lot of that kind of like distal SIBO, um, you know, that, that's probably a little bit more kind of like large bowel influenced. But, um, you know, that that would be something um, balancing the small, balancing the large bowel, normalizing bowel movements can be so helpful for, um, you know, for symptoms and how someone, uh, a patient's feeling. And then the long tail of the treatment is to lock in those changes and make sure that patients don't relapse. When you look at the literature and the treatment that they recommend for SIBO, it's a very specialized antibiotic called rifaximin. Um, that's for the hydrogen dominant one. Uh, the methane dominant one, that's more the constipated side. They're, they're combining two different uh, antibiotics. There is a strong relapse rate uh, in, in, these, uh, in these patients and in, the, in these studies. And I suspect, I have no idea, but I suspect that uh, that's because the root cause hadn't been addressed. So if you say something like uh, the pancreas isn't keeping up, if you just wipe out the bugs in the small bowel, you might feel better for a month or two. Great. If you start to relapse and all your symptoms come back and then they retest and SIBO's back, I'd, I'd, I'd start to look at some of these, um, these drivers of, uh, of uh, dysbiosis and, and SIBO from there. So it's much like trying to get a weed out of your garden. You need to pull it out by the roots, not just chop the top off because it will keep you yes. back. I love that. I'm going to use that. I love that. Yeah. That's the best. <laughs> I'm wearing my thinking cap today, Todd. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I just, yeah, I'm going to use it. I'm writing it down now. <laughs> Cool. So, because SIBO is something that if you do a quick Google, you get your diagnosis and you do a quick Google search, it will tell you, yeah, you're, you're, you're buggered. It's going to keep mm. coming back. This is a relapse. This is something you have to live with forever. And my mm. personal belief is nothing is permanent. We are ever moving, ever changing beings. There is no mm -hmm. such thing as permanency when it comes to physical conditions. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Root cause. Yeah, finding the root cause and dealing with it. And uh, yeah, sometimes people are so kind of uh, stuck in that dysfunction for, for whatever reason. Could be something as, um, you know, maybe um, something uh, not so obvious, like um, a, a damage to your spine, to your vagal nerve, your coccyx bone, something that's, uh, that's dysregulating that, uh, that gut motility can be, uh, it can be a physical issue. For sure and we can do things to support those physical issues too um bone therapy can be quite effective for one exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and that's that's why you need a team for sure and so a lot of kind of um natural therapists um you know they're, they're not kind of big on doctors can understand why i've heard a lot of horror stories but shared care kind of across the board physical health mental health 
um, drugs if patients need it, short-term, long-term, as long as they're safe and doing what they need to do. And we're supporting, um, you know, supporting their, uh, their health um, and ability to detox their liver. That's, uh, that, that, that can be essential for, for people to uh, regain their health. Yeah. So do you have any advice regarding diet? Just yeah, a little blanket there what would be to, to kind of prevent these sorts of imbalances and issues and to give you the most robust microbiome that you can mm. manage? What sort of diet, like is a Mediterranean more favourable or a paleo sort of approach? What's your opinion on that? Mm, yeah, I love it. That's definitely kind of person to person. That, that kind of it depends is, uh, is like a common answer for me. Yeah. Um, so the big one there, I mean, if you are healthy and you just want to care for your microbiome and you want to stay healthy digestively, um, the literature is pretty darn clear. If you can feed these beneficial bugs, the food that they like to consume, they're going to reward you for it. And so it gets really complicated, but keeping it nice and simple, the things that most people can kind of like understand intuitively. Um, if, you, if you give these guys what they like to eat, they're going to multiply and they're going to kind of dominate the niche, your, your, your gut. This is the large bowel we're talking about. It's going to help kind of heal and seal the large bowel gut lining. And it's going to be very difficult for less friendly bugs to... Um, you know, take up residence and expand and multiply. And it's so funny because we have learned and been taught and read that, that you know, kind of uh, alkaline, 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 which is, you know, healthy and um, definitely something to focus on, um, you know, systemically. But in the gut, in the large bowel, we want the gut nice and acidic. And that is a consequence, that's a byproduct of your healthy bugs fermenting fiber and producing um, these byproducts, things like short chain fatty acids, butyrate, it probably has the most literature. It's the all-star short chain fatty acid of the large bowel. It is anti-cancer. It helps keep these uh, less friendly bugs from uh, taking over. It is the primary fuel source. It feeds the gut lining. So it keeps the gut lining nice and, um, nice and happy and healthy. Um, does a bunch of other things. When you have sufficient amount of butyrate, it spills over into uh, systemic circulation and has all these other wonderful uh, roles. Helps manage things like blood, uh, blood sugar. Um, so, you know, some of these kind of like um, metabolic um, diseases that are so prevalent, things like diabetes, type 2 diabetes, they might, and I don't want to put all the kind of eggs in the gut, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's a bunch, I know there's a bunch of other drivers, but um, having a good, healthy, anti-inflammatory um, gut microbiome is, is a great place to start. Fermentable fibers, as long as you can tolerate it. The problem here is that patients who are digestively unwell don't tend to tolerate, they don't feel good when they consume foods that are rich in uh, fibers. Um, most people that have been unwell, you know, with their kind of, uh, you know, poor digestion, they'll, they'll have been recommended a low FODMAP diet. Mm -hmm. And so the FODMAPs, uh, fermentable oligosaccharides, uh, disaccharides, uh, and polyols, FODMAPs, I'm sure I missed one there. Um, they, those are the fermentable um, 
uh, th th those are the things that your beneficial bugs ferment. Gut dysfunction, things like SIBO. If you give someone, if you load someone up with a FODMAP rich food, uh, the big triggers there would be things like onions and garlic. Um, gluten would be a big one. Uh, other dairy, the lactose, fructose, um, you know, fructose rich fruits. They're going to blow up like a balloon. They're going to get, um, you know, really gassy. They're going to really react poorly. Um, and that's because the gut has become so imbalanced that it can't uh, process these really healthy uh, foods. And so going in nice and low and slow, rebalancing, then trialing someone on FODMAPs uh, or, um, you know, even kind of FODMAP rich uh, supplements and, uh, and prebiotic fibers. Um, that's how you can kind of slowly coax um, imbalanced guts back into health and, uh, and wholeness. So it is possible for people to, to heal and to remain in a healthy state. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And again, my patient population, some of them are so stuck in dysfunction and there's something that's just, there's one little thread that you just have to pull that kind of brings everything into line and you get, you know, a good, maybe like 50% improvement on symptoms. And sometimes it's, you know, you feel like a bit of a detective looking for that. Mm -hmm. Say for the general public, someone dealing with kind of mild digestive symptoms, I would focus on better bowel movements. I'd start with, um, with a higher fiber diet to see if that's tolerated. There is a little kind of echo chamber, you know, in the podcast community and in the blogosphere at the moment that fiber doesn't, doesn't do much. Big push towards carnivore at the moment. Um, I am open-minded to carnivore, but I am extremely concerned about it. I think there are some, some definite uh, issues. I don't have any problem with someone trialing a diet um, as a treatment phase. So something like low FODMAP, even like strictly low FODMAP, um, that's been shown to dysregulate the, um, the gut microbiome. So that, that's, that's been shown to negatively impact your, uh, your gut bugs, your good guys. So not something you want to be on forever, but if it makes you feel good initially, it can buy you a little bit of time while you treat the root cause and get you feeling better. Um, the, the, the trifecta for me would be probiotics, prebiotic fibers, and herbal medicines, whole herbs if possible. We make our own herbal tinctures from whole herbs, dried them, grind them, and uh, extract them into, uh, into liquids. Um, if those are poorly tolerated, you can wind them all the way back to uh, more like herbal extracts. Um, they're stronger, um, but they're that you don't get the benefits of uh, of the whole herbs. It's like eating whole foods versus uh, you know something out of a packet. That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, cool. And when you're referring to fiber-rich foods, are you talking about polyphenol? Polyphenols are great. Love it. And there's so much, so much data. You could spend the rest of your life uh, reading about kind of polyphenols, uh, flavonoids, um, you know, just, just a bunch of, uh, you know, I mean, curcumin, uh, turmeric falls into that one, all of your berries, anything kind of flavored. I mean, getting back to kind of like foundations, um, you know, eating the rainbow as long as you can tolerate it. And I just have to remember that, you know, a good whole foods diet is not the norm. Yeah, um, it is. It is the norm in my patient population because they've been unwell and they've kind of done all the low hanging fruit pieces. But 
you know, kind of a, a reset. And I like to think about it a little bit like kind of a challenge for patients who are a bit kind of resistant. Get your family on board, get your friends on board, make it a little bit, kind of gamify it a little bit, see who can go for a month, see where the kind of temptations are. Um, but the big one would be, um, you know, maybe a month of, um, of eating whole foods. Don't eat out of packets for a month. Make your own, you know, make your own food from scratch, uh, you know, for, for a full month. It's pretty darn challenging. Um, but if you feel significantly better then you, uh, you know, for sure that, um, that food could be kind of nutrient uh, density, um, it could be kind of uh, malnourished, that, that was a big driver of symptoms. And then when we start cutting food, which I really kind of hate doing, it's, it's very, um, uh, you know, food's intimate, you know, people are very tied to their diets. Um, but the, the, the kind of three big ones that people react to as, as kind of top level, there would be things like gluten, dairy would be a big one, next level down, things like eggs would be a big one, legumes, um, you know, soybeans, chickpeas, lentils, uh, then you're getting a little bit more into those uh, fermentable fibers that can cause a lot of gas and bloating and distension in some, some people. Cool. So we have one final question that I ask everybody. <laughs> I've been thinking about this all day. <laughs> so what is the most empowering piece of information or advice that you can share today? I love it. Uh, yeah, again, I have, I've been thinking a lot about this. Initially, I just wanted to keep it nice and simple, and maybe I will, but you know me, I like to talk. Um, <laughs> nice and simple, it would be drink clean water. Drink sufficient, a sufficient amount of clean water. And, um, you know, our family, we buy in spring water. Um, if that's too much or too difficult or it's not available, then uh, reverse osmosis and then back through like a mineral filter. Um, the Brita filters that you, people are running their water through and, and popping in the fridge, that's just a taste thing. That's not going to remove any impurities. And uh, it was so clear. We moved Shires. We moved to a new kind of locality maybe about six or seven years ago. And in the original kind of locality, we were living in Mullumbimby, it was the Byron Shire. They didn't put any fluoride, no, they didn't put any chlorine in the water. They didn't put in some like fluoride or chlorine, chlorine I couldn't remember. Um, and then moving to this new Shire, they did. And, you know, everything, you know, uh, food that we would cook in it, um, standing under the shower, my, uh, my wife broke out in like a skin rash. Um, and so consider that drinking it clean water so important and low-hanging fruit easy to do quite affordable even like a like a reverse osmosis setup under the sink wouldn't cost you more than three hundred dollars and uh you know it, it is uh that's a cheap investment for long-term health for sure beautiful we just moved home too and we've always had a shower filter i've always had one on there to remove the chlorine and we didn't put one on here um, there was a filter coming into the house. So we thought we'd just see how we go. And then I started breaking out in a rash. And went, wow. Mm. So we've popped the filter back on there. But there are some some really good um, water filtration systems. We have a bio, bio filter. It's a naturopath recommended. Um, it goes through and filters everything out and remineralizes. It's very expensive, but it is amazing. And the water mm. is fantastic. But I mm. love that because we are 80% water or more than that. <laughs> That's right. It's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. 
I agree. Yeah, power so much. I'm just changing over to uh, like when we were living in Melbourne, we drank tap water, you know, kind of our, uh, my whole 20s and changing over to quality water was just an absolute game changer. Yeah, for sure. So if people want to work with you, are you still taking on new clients and um, how can they get in contact? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Still taking on clients. It's a little bit of a wait list. And, um, you know, we're thinking of setting up a little bit of a kind of like an application um, uh, program. Mm -hmm. um, but just at the moment, just online, um, byronherbalist.com.au. Um, that's the best way to get in touch. I'm very focused on digestive health. That's kind of like my expertise <clears throat> and moving more towards kind of chronic digestive health. Um, you know, even if symptoms are kind of mild and moderate, uh, happy to help. But uh, yeah, like I say, most of my patients have become, um, uh, they're coming to me uh, with decades of digestive health issues. And, uh, you know, that that's where uh, I feel like I can support. Um, yeah, so definitely get, get in touch, reach out, um, you can book online, and uh, yeah, be happy to hear from you. And thanks so much for the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's been thank great chatting. Thank you. So people don't actually have to come to you in person too. I just want to clarify that. Yeah, you do everything via Zoom. Tests can be done through the... Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's such a such a great point. Um, yeah, most... I mean, I'm seeing more patients locally now, but uh, most patients I see, 95%, I, I do it over like video conferencing or phones. And, uh, you know, I, I am kind of open to international patients on a, on a case-by-case but um, I've kind of restricted patients to Australia and New Zealand for the most part. And that's just because uh, getting, you know, some patients, they, they kind of get in touch with this stuff. Everything's online. Why, why are you restricting them? It's getting people the, the right medicines, um, you know, uh, that, that's like as a herbalist, work with a lot of herbs, very unique herbs, herbs that no one's ever heard of, herbs that no one can get their hands on unless they go through us. And uh, international shipping takes time. There's a delay, so we, I don't know where they're at in their uh, in their kind of treatment plan. And uh, it's also very expensive as well. So that's the kind of main reason for the restriction. But yeah, everything's online, and you know it's easy to do in uh, in, in this new uh, new world. Cool. I'll pop the link there on my Facebook page um, for your page underneath mine, so that anybody that's listening wants to get hold of you it's nice and easy for them to do um, excellent i think we're all done thanks so much for your time today todd pleasure all right we'll talk again thank you okay bye bye